This is Truncated Thoughts presented by Prescouter, where we have short discussions on big ideas in healthcare. I'm Jeremy Schmerer, and I'm joined by Dr. Ryan LaRanger. Today, we're talking about brain-computer interfaces, which is a technology aimed at capturing and analyzing neural signals. The technology makes a pure brain-based communication possible, which may be useful for helping patients dealing with stroke and other neurological disorders regain the ability to perform everyday tasks. Ryan, before we get into specific applications, perhaps we should start by describing how the harnessing of brain signals actually occurs. Okay. So broadly speaking, there are a couple of different ways, right? Uh, Whenever any neuron fires, creates a little electrical signal and you can sort of pick up on that signal, right? It's a question of, are you doing it directly or remotely? By which I mean to say, is there a wire that's hitting that neuron or it's near that neuron neuron that's able to detect the signal? Or are you getting something like an EEG or other more distant recognition of a neuron firing? So those are the two broad classifications. Does that make sense? Yeah, maybe you can help us understand how they're actually targeting these neurons. Oh, God, uh, location, mostly. (laughs) So um, if you're dealing with a direct interface, it's uh, physical contact, right? So if you're talking about uh, some of the classic ways that these experiments were done is that you would have a chip with a bunch of these, you know, needle interfaces that would basically rest on the brain. Um, Oh, yeah. Well, but so this is uh, not invasive it's minimally invasive just a small like an acupuncture needle type or no 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 no. it's pretty invasive uh but there are a bunch of different types Uh, that's that's sort of where i'm going with this some of them are a little invasive some of them are really invasive um and when we're talking about those kinds of chips those were quite invasive now there are other technologies uh the elon musk Neuralink, by way of example they're working on uh inserting a very small wire having that go in have a lot of branches and interface with a number of different neurons eeg or other sort of electrical signal reading that happens where you know someone puts on a helmet and there's a bunch of these different electrodes on it they are less able to read specific neurons and are more able to read areas of the brain firing. So it's much less exact, but it's obviously much less invasive. Understood. So what happens with this data, right? You're harnessing these signals, you're analyzing, what what can it be used for? Oh, gosh, um, it can be used for a lot. Uh, first of all, it's, you know, bi-directional, right? You can also s- sort of send through, um, especially if you have the direct interface, and there's a whole subfield, deep brain stimulation, based on applying, you know, stimulation, as you might expect, uh, in specific regions of the brain to treat neurological disorders, uh, Parkinson's, there are some attempts to do this with Alzheimer's and so on. The science there is really, really interesting. It's hard to know exactly how it's working. Um, in terms of other applications, it's processing of that data is complicated, uh, especially for EEG. You're just you're trying to turn these very uh, sort of noisy signals into an interpretation of what's happening. But what can you do with it, right? 
Um, the easiest, simplest example to think of is imagining someone moving a video game character around a screen, right? Or doing something very simple where a computer anticipate or interprets some sort of movement in the brain activity as a function of what can happen. An interesting thing is that a patient can be trained very quickly to use what's effectively this new arm to move something around. You can hook robots up to it, uh, wheelchairs to it, or even airborne drones to this kind of interface and allow someone who might not have that much motor function to either move themselves or something else around. Can you talk a little bit more about the actual training? What has me thinking about this is if, suppose someone's recently had a stroke and maybe they've lost some motor function, you know, wouldn't it be difficult for them to learn a, a new concept or something complex like this training that you're describing? Can you describe the training a bit more and how easy it actually may be? Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, I mean, obviously, this is a little bit fraught and it will depend a little bit a lot from person to person, depending on the kinds of damage, right? Like how much of it is motor neuron damage, how much of it is just, how much of it is they can't move, how much of it is it's difficult to move. Um, but the actual training resembles how you would in some ways teach a child how to ride a bike, right? Where at first it's something that they're sort of shown, right? So you know, you'll have a person, they'll have the EEG helmet on or you know, whatever it is the system is, and they'll have in front of them a robotic arm and the robotic arm will do a simple task, right? And then you know they'll calibrate the signal reception because the signal output is different from person to person, right? It takes some time to what I would say, normalize that program to that patient. But once you do it, it's actually pretty reliable and training is relatively quick. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so at what point in someone's say rehabilitation might this be part of the, the treatment plan? That depends a lot on what you want to do with it. Uh, this is not necessarily a standard thing mm -hmm. and it's not for all kinds of rehabilitation, right? It's if uh, you, if you can think about it, for most people, they're not necessarily going to be drone operators dealing with this kind of machinery after something like this happening. And so for them, uh, this kind of therapy can be helpful. It allows them to sort of play certain kind of games, get improved quality of life. But we're not at the stage where it's sort of a standard part of the treatment process. Now, this may change with time. So for instance, there are groups right now working on... Um, wheelchairs, which I think is fascinating, and robotic exoskeletons, which I think is really fascinating, that can be controlled by these kinds of trained uh, brain movements that do not necessarily require um, invasive surgery in order to get that signal. And so I'm going to pause there. Does that all make sense? Because the next thing I have to talk about is a little heavy in terms of data management. Don't let me stop your train of thought. Please continue. Okay. So then the idea here is um, many of the classical brain machine interface experiments uh, were very challenging in part because you have to do an invasive surgery. And once the chip is in there, eventually um, it corrodes. The, the brain actually will, or uh, the body will actually attack and 
try to degrade the chip over time. So the signal loses its uh, coherence and eventually you need to replace the chip. Uh, that's a huge problem, obviously, from a scalability perspective. The problem with using non-invasive brain-machine interface is that the quality of the signal is much lower. Now, here's a place where uh, machine learning, artificial intelligence can make a big difference because you can take these noisy data sets and if you have a really good sort of data processing machine learning tool, you can clarify those data sets down into higher resolution movements interpreted from the patient, right? So you have this machine learning middleman, basically, which is allowing you to take the data you're getting from these non-invasive brain machine interface systems and turn it into the kind of resolution of data that you would normally only get from a, a high resolution system. Now, something else along these lines, which is very important when we're talking about uh, control of robots or control of drones and brain machine interfaces, it's important to keep in mind that you don't just need to be looking at brain signals, right? Uh, the nervous system is a whole body phenomenon, right? Uh, motor neurons affect in all sorts of ways. And so you can have supplemental data coming from other signals to allow a person much finer control, especially in terms of things that need to move. So there are a number of very interesting groups that are working on uh, using these kinds of systems to control aerial drones. And there's one group in particular that I thought was fascinating that has made basically a full suit that includes um, an EEG system as part of it or a non-invasive system as part of it, but also has uh, receptors elsewhere on the body that can pick up uh, motor neuron signals. And people who used these suits to control the flight of a drone had something like 10 or 20 times faster training speeds to get up to full control of that drone relative to a pilot who was just given a joystick. So effectively, it's, it's just better data from a number of different places when you're having these sensors, these like micro sensors all over the body, it sounds like. Potentially, yeah. I mean, it's so a general rule with artificial intelligence or machine learning is the more sources of data you have, the better the signal you can get, right? Or the more accurate a signal you can get. So I'll, I'll challenge you a little bit here because, you know, thinking about the whole Terminator mentality of like, you know, <laughs> the machines getting smart or mind reading. Well, there's a little debate out there on this topic about if you're collecting all of this data from various places, particularly the brain, how is this different than mind reading? Because if you can get these brain signals and harness them, you might be able to know what somebody is thinking, no? Oh, oh what a wonderful philosophical question. Uh, the short answer is we're getting progressively better at understanding what neuron is firing. We have no idea what a particular neuron's firing means from a cognitive perspective. Uh, let me explain that a little bit more. Right. So uh, when people are being trained on these devices, uh, there's no universal system. It always needs to start from scratch. The reason why is because the body is actually training the system how to work as opposed to the reverse. So we can't tell what neuron means I liked breakfast. 
but the body can sort of figure out what neuron is associated with move up, move down, move left, move right. And so it's part of the, you know, why it's not immediately scalable and why you need to retrain the system for every single new patient or user. So it sounds like for the moment, um, what will help us sleep at night is that the, um, the human is controlling the machine and not the other way around. Your thoughts about <laughs> breakfast are very safe okay. from machines <laughs> for the foreseeable future. Right on. So let's leave it there for now. Uh, that's all the time we've got for, for today. We hope our listeners enjoyed this conversation. Hope we didn't get too sci-fi on you. But uh, if you're not a subscriber already, you can find us, of course, on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Our next episode is going to dive into autoimmune disease treatments a bit. But until then, thanks for listening.